When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your one and only host, Liv, here with 
Well, something very different from our usual fare. You see, there was once a, a battle of frogs and mice. Or rather, there was once an epic poem of the battle of frogs and mice. <sighs> Whether these small creatures ever actually donned armor and went after one another has yet to be proven. Okay, fine, it probably didn't happen. But what did happen was someone wrote an epic poem in the style of the Iliad and the Odyssey with the intention of satirizing Homer's poems. And they made it a battle between frogs and mice because the ancient world is absolutely the silliest, coolest place around. First, though, a reminder that when this episode comes out, I will be wandering around Greece. Needless to say, I'm very excited. And if you want to see where I'm going or where I've been, including my first ever trip to fucking Mycenae, Mycenae, then make sure you follow me on Instagram. The account is MythsBaby, obviously. I'm going to try to remember to do some Instagram lives and videos and just like lots more content because I know you guys really like seeing Greece. You're always asking me questions about it and stuff. Maybe I'll do some kind of Q&A over there. Stay tuned. It's going to be fun. I'm not sure my travels will be more exciting than the fact that there is an ancient epic poem about a battle between frogs and mice, but I can try to get close. <laughs> The ancient Greeks enjoyed a bit of parody about as much as we do now. Parody is fun. It's another way of looking at stories and concepts, adding to those, making fun, whatever it may be. And this epic poem is a brilliant example of this love of parody, something that I will be talking about more in a future reading episode. <sighs> ancient Greek parody. Aristotle claimed that the first parody was done by Hegemon of Thassos, and that he changed well-known poetry, shifting their subjects from the lofty and heroic to the base and ridiculous. The word parody itself comes from the Greek paroidia, which means beside the song or story or against the song or story. Either of these definitions fits well with the idea of parody in general, even if one of them makes it sound a, a bit more antagonistic than the other. But today's the Batrachomyomachia, a word I will continue to use even though it makes my mouth catch on fire, is the perfect introduction to ancient Greek parody. When it was written and by whom is a hot topic and the debate is supremely far-reaching. Maybe it was written as early as the 5th century BCE or maybe as late as the 2nd century CE. Who wrote it is even more of a mystery, though in the Roman period, it was attributed to Homer himself. I'm referring to a couple different editions and translations of this work for today's episode. As always, they're listed in the episode's description, but one of them requires a bit more background. The translation by A.E. Stallings is a fascinating one. She referred to an edition of the Greek work from the 16th century that she had access to in Athens, and found in it not only a translation like hidden in the marginalia, but also scraps of Athens metro tickets that provided an introduction to the work itself. One that was attributed to a noni mouse. Ugh, puns. According to this a noni mouse introduction, among other fascinating things, Alexander the Great is called that to distinguish himself from Alexander the Cheese Grater. <laughs> so says this intro. Uh, yes, bits of this seem to be parody in itself, and it's just a 
handwritten introduction, there are so many incredible puns hidden within it, like the casual assertion that the epic set during the Mycenaean period. (laughs) Or beyond puns, the equally casual theory that, quote, typically the focus of the debate among humans concerns possible human authors ruling out the tribe of mice. It goes on to argue that the epic was clearly written by a mouse, and not just any mouse, but a library mouse. Perhaps even one from the Library of Alexandria. (laughs) But the A Noni Mouse author explains, What we can be sure of is that the epic was not written by a frog, because, quote, No self-respecting frog would cast the Rainian race in such a dim light. Now, there are so many more fascinating things to say about this work, and even mice in the ancient world generally. All things I've learned through this Stallings edition. But first, why don't we look at the epic itself? And well, let's just go with the idea that it was written by a mouse. This is episode 169. There once was a battle of frogs and mice, the satirical silliness of the Batrachomyomachia. The mouse bard of the Batrachomyomachia begins the epic poem as any respectable bard would, and indeed should, by calling upon the muses to inspire them. Sing muses and ensure that this story of the bravery of mice prevailed over the, quote, frogs-amphibian alliance, a feat to emulate the earth-born giants. We are starting this off with a bang, connecting the tiny world of mice to the gigantic world of, well, the giants. The end notes for this edition has a beautiful explanation for this. Mice, like giants, are earthborn. Stallings notes that this is because the ancients believed that mice just kind of sprung from the earth at random after a light rain. Which, I mean, I love that. Like, you see a mouse running out of a hole in the ground? It's been generated by the earth obviously. And this makes for the perfect way to connect such famous stories, the battle of the gods and the giants and the battle of the frogs and mice. Equally epic tales, of course. But how did such a famous and tiny war begin? Well, one day, a mouse found himself very thirsty. He'd just barely escaped death by weasel and was feeling very parched. He came upon a pond and went to take a drink when he was startled by a low and throaty voice. "'Who are you?' the voice asked. "'Why are you here at this pond, and who are your parents? Are you a friend? If so, I'll bring you home and give you lots of gifts.' Then the voice, the frog, introduced himself, quote, "'I am King Pufferthroat. Throughout these bogs I am renowned as ruler of the frogs.' King Pufferthroat, or Physignathos in the Greek, continued to introduce himself to the thirsty mouse, explaining who his own parents were and that he was born on the pond's edge. His father, he explains, was named Peleus. 
Yes, just like Achilles' own father. And in the end notes to this edition, it's explained that this is quite intentional, but also a bit ironic. Yes, this king of the frogs has a noble named father, but is also very close to the word pelos, which, well, just meant mud. The frog's mother's name, meanwhile, is none other than Hydromedusa, which basically means queen or guardian of the waters. Likely an intentional nod to Achilles' mother, Thetis, a major water goddess. You, King Pufferthroat continued, seem to be no ordinary mouse, quote, the crowning glory of a royal house, a fighter famous on the field of battle. The mouse, it seems, just puts off an air of importance. You know how mice can be. Well, answered the mouse, quote, my race is known to men and gods and birds. I'm trying not to quote too much, but it's just really good. <laughs> he goes on to explain that his name is Crumb Snatcher, or Psycharpax in Greek. He is the son of brave Brednar, his father, and Nibblecorn, his mother. The names, you guys. The names. Crumb Snatcher goes on to explain where he was born and some general notes about his childhood. That his mother, Nibblecorn, fed him figs and walnut meat. He notes to King Pufferthroat that, with all their differences, mice versus frogs and all, how could they possibly be friends? You frogs live your lives in the water as much as you can. We mice live on land, stealing from humans' tables. Quote, I never miss the fresh loaf kneaded thrice or a slice of marbled ham or pastry stuffed with cheese and sesame, as flaky as you please. He goes on to explaining even more of his favorite human food. Relishing the fact that everything humans feast off of is more than fit for mice. And I mean, he's not wrong. That's a pretty nice setup. And just the mention of food in this way, feasting and decadence, is another direct reference to Homer and all the talk of food there. As a past guest called it, ancient food porn. But this time, it's with mice. Then he shifts his talk of the lives of mice to more serious matters. Crumb Snatcher is a brave mouse. When he's a mouse in battle, as so often can happen, he flies into the thick of it. Even humans don't scare him. He skitters around their feet as though they're not even there. And better than that, at night he nibbles at their human feet, so lightly they don't even notice. It's quite the life, being an ancient mouse. Still, it isn't all fun and games. Oh, no. There are two things that even brave Crumb Snatcher is afraid of. The hawk and the weasel, quote, pilferers of breath. Them and, quote, the trap, in whose cruel jaws lies tricksome death. It's the weasels that are the worst, though, Crumb Snatcher tells King Pufferthroat. They lie in wait in one's own hole. But, the mouse continues, back to that food. And then he goes on to explain the foods that he does not steal, those he isn't interested in. Radish, kale, leeks, parsley, pumpkin. Nope, he's not a fan of, quote, salad like you people of the lake. This is fucking precious. Also an interesting just look at ancient food and life and, and mice. <laughs>
Once our brave mouse crumb snatcher has finished his exposition to the King of the Frogs, finished explaining all of his favorite foods alongside his life among the humans, King Pufferthroat notes that, well, quote, you boast about your belly overmuch. <laughs> he explains that the frogs are less concerned with their stomachs and food in general. There's too much for them to see. Do you have any idea what it's like to be able to explore both land and lake? He asks. What lives we lead, blessed by Zeus to be amphibians. I'd love to show you how we live, the king frog says to the mouse. Quote, just climb up on my back, you'll be all right, as long as you make sure to hold on tight. And so the mouse did exactly that. He climbed upon the nice frog's back, grabbed hold with his little mousy paws, and off they went. Now, while the two were safely on dry land, the mouse is very comfortable upon the frog's back, and he's happy to be given a tour. But as they touch the water, and the mouse finds his fur getting wet, the wine-dark waters raising around him, that's when the panic starts to set in. He cries out, quote, The bull upon his withers did not convey Europa, Cupid's cargo in this way, along the sea to Crete. Not how this frog takes me across the water to his log on his green back. The poor guy is really scared, and honestly, I feel worse for this little mouse than I do most people in mythology. Because animals, you know? Anyway, he's only going to get worse, because just as he's at his most frightened of the water, he's a mouse calling out mythological references, he's so scared. A water snake appears as if out of nowhere. The frog is scared by the snake, and without thinking, he dives deep into the water to get away. And he does get away, but he left his new little mousy friend there to drown. The little guy tried and tried to stay above the water, but he's a little mouse. He's not a good swimmer. And so just as he's about to drown, he calls out, calling for vengeance against the frog. And as with any good Homeric epic, even though the little guy is still moments from death and sputtering in the water, no less, he's still able to call out a big old curse upon the frog for this deception. He says that if they were still on land, he would have won at any contest, but taking him into the water, the frog had sealed his fate. He finishes his sad little speech, quote, God has an eye for justice, and my slaughter will not go unavenged. You'll pay the price. You won't escape the army of the mice. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. 
Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the poor little mouse crumb snatcher died there in the pond, abandoned by the frog king. He cried out his curse, calling for the army of mice to avenge him. And, fortunately, there was one mouse close enough to hear and see crumb snatcher's demise. Lickaplate was that mouse's name, Lycopnax in the Greek. Lickaplate happened to be there on the water's edge, and he witnessed his friend being abandoned to die by the king of the frogs. Having seen this, he runs off in search of the other mice to tell them all he'd seen about, quote, the fatal bath. When they heard about noble crumb snatcher's death at the hands, or rather, what, whatever it is we call frogs' hands, The other mice were furious and filled with wrath, just as Crumb Snatcher had asked of them, had cursed on the frog. They began to plot their plan of attack. The mice sent their messengers all around, asking that everyone gather in the morning at the house of Brednar, Crumb Snatcher's father, Troxartos in the Greek. 
They did exactly this, and when all the mice had gathered together in Brednar's home, he began a speech to the assembled rodents. He said that he was the first to be harmed in this way by the frogs, with his son killed by their king, but that others would be next. They would have to do something about it. He spoke of his other sons. Both had also died tragically. One by a weasel who snuck up upon him, and the other in a wooden trap. The specification here that it's wooden may even be an allusion to that other wooden trap from ancient epic, the Trojan horse. Once he has told his story to the assembled mice, Brednar calls upon them all to arm themselves to prepare for a battle with the frogs. Brednar's speech rouses the mice to battle. They won't stand for this kind of murderous trickery on the part of the frogs. And so, they prepare themselves for that battle, quote, and Ares, lord of war, armed one and all. And then, well, I have to quote some more because we get an idea of what exactly ancient mice might use as, as weapons and armor, and it is adorable. Quote, the greaves upon their shins were half a pod of green bean with its contents neatly gnawed. They'd worked all night on these and skillfully made cuirasses from a weasel they had flayed, its skin stretched on a reed frame. Each would wield the handle of an oil lamp for a shield. They brandished needles for long-shadowing spears, the brazen work of Ares. On their ears were helms of chickpea shells. First, so cute. Second, love that it's all adorable like green beans and chickpeas. And oh, that weasel they'd flayed. You know, totally standard mouse armor. However, the mice didn't keep their plans silent. The frogs heard of what was coming for them, how well the mice prepared for battle, how they planned to attack. So the frogs, too, convened in a council to determine what to do. Ancient animals were very well organized, you see. They were prepared for anything, even interspecies wars. At first, the frogs don't know why it is that the mice have intended to attack them to wage a war against the frogs. But just as they'd convened the group, a messenger mouse arrived with news. Do you need to know the mouse's name for the story? No. Am I going to tell you anyway because, like all the mice, it is an adorable name? Yes. The messenger's name is Pot Creeper, and he was the son of Noble Chisel Cheese. So, Pot Creeper arrived at the Council of Frogs to share the news, to explain why it is that the mice now wish to wage a war against the frogs. The mouse brought news of Crumb Snatcher's untimely death, how there had been a witness there to see the act, see how Puffer Throat had left him in the water to die. For this, the mice will go to war, quote, So you should arm yourselves for battle, frogs, those who are warriors and not pollywogs. Oh, oh, did I mention that this translation also manages to make it all rhyme? It's brilliant. Now, at first, the frogs hear this and they feel for the mice. I mean, murder is murder, even if it was committed by their king. And so they initially do blame their king for the complaints of the mice. The accusation that he murdered one of them. But then Pufferthroat speaks up to defend himself. 
Pufferthroat announces to the other frogs assembled that he didn't witness anything remotely close to murder out there on the pond. No, no, he says, I didn't see anything at all, certainly not a mouse drowning in the water. So yes, the King of the Frogs is a big old liar. I mean, an accidental drowning is one thing, but straight up lying? <sighs> no good, frog. Pufferthroat goes on. He suggests that maybe what happened is that the mouse was simply, quote, clowning by the lake and trying to swim like us. That maybe he, he drowned by mistake. So he goes on to suggest, quote, Now these wicked mice besmirch my name with crime, a frog all innocent of blame. That's it, he decides. The mice won't get away with this. And from here, he begins to lead the frogs in the same direction as the mice. It is time to go to war against that other species. They can't get away with such accusations. He calls to the other frogs that they should arm themselves and gather on the edge of the pond. That way, when the army of mice comes for them, they need only grab a hold of the closest mouse and throw them into the pond behind them. Quote, In this way we shall drown the sinkers, then we shall erect with pride a monument to our glorious mouse's side. <sighs> That's some dark shit, frogs. I mean, legit, you did cause crumb snatcher's death. Puffer throat. So many words I never thought I would be reading to you on this podcast, but here we are. The ancient world was silly, too. King Pufferthroat is so convincing in his rousing speech to the other frogs that they are happy to follow his instructions, arming themselves for war against those pesky, pesky mice. Now you just know I have to share with you the way the frogs armed themselves for war because it's just as precious as the mice. The frogs, quote, wore a breastplate made of green beet leaves, a cabbage leaf became a well-wrought shield, and each was furnished with a rush to wield, long and pointed. <sighs> the very Homeric description of how these little animals prepare for battle against their new enemies goes on to add that the frogs also each wore a polished snail's shell on their heads as a helmet. It's adorable. <laughs> But would it be a Homeric epic, satirical or otherwise, without the intervention of the gods themselves? No, no it would not. And so now, as the frogs and mice each prepare for battle, arming themselves and psyching themselves up against their tiny foes, the gods watched from Mount Olympus. Zeus called upon the other Olympian gods to look down on Earth to take note of the tiny mice and the tiny frogs as they prepare to fight one another in a tiny but epic and momentous battle. They're described as, quote, might and great and brandishing their long javelins, two armies in the style of the centaurs or the giants. Then Zeus makes the further connection to the Iliad in that fateful epic battle. He asks, which of the immortal gods will help either the frogs or the mice? Which will step in to put a finger on the scale, just as they did with the Achaeans and the Trojans? He points to Athena, specifically, asking her whether she will side with the mice, quote, For they rejoice at every sacrifice, cavorting in your temples day and night, and nibbling at every food in sight. Oh, no, no, no. 
Athena replies to her father. She has no desire to help the mice at all. In fact, she says, for what they've done in her temples, the war serves them right. Athena is very, very much not on the side of the local mouse. She complains that they ruin the garlands in her temples, that they wreck the lamps that light the space, searching for the oil within. And on top of it all, she adds, what's worst is that they chewed holes in my sacred robes. Quote, that was brand new. I wove the cloth myself, you may assume with no small pains, upon a fine warped loom. Then she goes on to complain that she had to pay money to help someone, or to pay someone to fix it, uh, that she had to borrow that money from someone else, and that they're charging her interest. Something, quote, we mortals most detest. Sorry, Athena doesn't have the money to pay for somebody to fix something, and she's being charged interest on a loan. What? What? Learning a lot about the gods here. How very bizarre and yet entirely wonderful. And Athena isn't finished her statement about that fateful battle. Oh no, she clarifies. She won't help the frogs either as they are not to be trusted. She says that she laid awake all night recently because their echoey croaking kept her up. Honestly, the gods have it tough when it comes to frogs and mice. Who would have thought? When Athena has finished her varied complaints on the behavior of both the frogs and the mice, she announces to the gods that she proposes that instead of picking a side, they make a point of helping neither the rodents or the amphibians, and instead they, quote, sit here at this safe height and watch the battle for our own delight. With the rest of the Olympian gods in agreement with Athena, they settle in to watch it all go down. And so with that, the battle is set to begin. Quote, Mosquitoes then, on bugles much too large, trumpeted the military charge. Yes, you heard me. The call to battle, the call for the enemies to charge one another, armed to the teeth and all their vegetation, comes from mosquitoes to rumpeting on bugles. With the battle begun, the casualties also begin. The first to go is the poor mouse Nibbleman, struck through by the frog loud boomer's spear. He falls to the earth with a thud. But the mice have their vengeance for this. Whole hider went for Mudworth's son, his own spear striking through the frog and taking him out too. He was snatched off by Thanatos, death himself, there on the battlefield. The battle goes on, raging across the tiny plains. Tiny mice fighting tiny frogs in their tiny adorable armor. Potcreeper took out Beet Eater with a strike to his heart. Catchfly saw this and was overcome by anger and grief, so he went after Holehider, but before Catchfly could remove his sharpened reed spear from Holehider, Crust Cruncher came flying at him. The mouse too overcome by his rage at the mice death that he's just witnessed. They fight hand to hand in the mud, but in the end it was Crust Cruncher who died at the hands of Catchfly. Can you tell I just want to make sure I share every single name with you? Next, Catchfly sees Cheese Eater, and he slew the mouse at the edge of the pond. 
Meanwhile, the frog Minty was overcome with fear when he saw the mouse Chiselham. He threw himself into the lake behind him and fled the battlefield entirely. But Waterman himself, cold-blooded, was brutally killed by Pot Creeper, who struck him with the boulder, quote, so that his brains went oozing out his nose, staining the earth around him with shades of rose. Lest you even for a moment think this is child-friendly. Bogspawn killed Lickaplate. Crumbswiper killed Bogspawn, or maybe another one named Leaky, frankly it's not clear which. One of those frogs, maybe both, is killed by the mouse. Cabbage Strider was killed by Croaker, his sharpened reed bursting through the mouse's furry belly. Quote, guts like jelly spilled out onto the ground as he withdrew the spear in his webbed hand. Finally, Brednar spots King Pufferthroat and he goes for the frog, who tries to escape by diving into a ditch nearby, but another mouse, Whiskers, saw him and rushed him, throwing his needle spear, though it struck Pufferthroat in his shield and stayed there. Then a frog, Oregano, went for Whiskers, seeming, quote, more like Ares than a frog. Oregano alone held the frog's line against the mice, but they surged towards him, and seeing so many of them, instead of fighting them all by himself, he dove into the lake, where he would be safe. Next among the valiant mice we meet, Morsel Snatcher, son of Scurry Scratcher, the Pantry Plotter. I am trying not to laugh. This is serious stuff. This is war. Anyway, Morsel Snatcher, son of Scurry Scratcher, the pantry plotter, quote, threatened to take the frogs by storm, and cracking a walnut right in two, he shoved his paws in either half, and walnut-gloved came at them swinging, sending many frogs to Hades, while the rest fled for the bogs. He wore walnut shells as boxing gloves and fought them all hand-to-hand. Morsel Snatcher is hardcore. But it was this final bout of action, namely by Morsel Snatcher, the son of Scurry Scratcher, the pantry plotter, that finally turned the tides in favor of the mice. It was looking so bad for the frogs below that Zeus, looking down upon them from Olympus, took pity on the frogs. He called for Athena, or Ares, to put a stop to the brave and deadly Morsel Snatcher, son of Scurry Scratcher, the pantry plotter. But instead of either of these gods stepping up, Hera speaks to her husband instead. She tells him and the other Olympians that neither Ares nor Athena can stop this now. It's too late. So let all the Olympians rush to their aid. Or, she says to Zeus, you could throw one of your thunderbolts to stop the slaughter of battle. Quote, as once you slew Capaneus for defiance and Enceladus and all the savage giants. Once again, the heroic tale of these mice and frogs is being likened to the war with the giants, something only Zeus could stop. It was decided. Hera was right. Zeus would only be able to stop the senseless slaughter between the rodents and the amphibians with one of his thunderbolts. And so he did. He threw a thunderbolt down from Mount Olympus, sending it spinning towards the earth. The sound and the sight startled both sides, the mice and the frogs, but it did not stop their fighting, particularly the desires of the mice to completely annihilate the frogs. And, we're told, they would have succeeded too in completely wiping out the race of frogs if it weren't for another last-minute plan on the side of Zeus. 
In a split second, the frogs were joined by another race, quote, with backs like armored tanks, crook-clawed, cross-eyed, sidestepping, ranks on ranks, scissor-mouthed, eight-legged and bony-shelled, flat-bodied, gleaming-shouldered, hands out-held. That's right, it's the race of crabs. Crabs appear suddenly from the water, sent by Zeus to help the frogs. Crabs! Crabs! If you think I didn't just completely burst out laughing when I read this, my gods. With the help of the crabs, whose claws snipped and snapped at the tails and the little legs of the ranks of mice, the frogs were finally defended. And so, quote, Soon the mice were frightened, on the run, while in the west the setting of the sun announced to all the one-day war was done. Oh. My. Gods. Sometimes I'm just completely blown away by the content that we have from the ancient world. This is fragmentary, so we don't actually know if it was finished, and there are a few missing pieces in there, but, I mean, all in all, perfect story? Perfect? We know they were funny, that they had satire and comedy broadly, that they had fun, but man, this is just so incredible and special and weird and cute, and oh my gods, the crabs at the end, it just absolutely killed me. Like, this is such a piece of art. The best part of all of it is that it isn't making fun of the frogs or the mice. It isn't even suggesting the comparison between them and the heroes like the Achaeans and the Trojans is inherently funny. The funny is just the very idea of frogs and mice arming themselves and going to battle in the most adorable way that they do. It's just such an interesting way to play with the story, make it silly without making it insulting to anyone at all. It's fucking precious. And there is so much more to say about this mini-epic and satire in general when it comes to the ancient world. So on Friday, I will share more about this wonderfully silly little piece, as well as just a straight reading of an older public domain translation of the work itself. (sighs) Stay tuned. We are not finished with these frogs and mice just yet. And as always, before I leave you, another five-star review from one of you magnificent listeners who I love so dearly. If you want to have yours read on the podcast, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This one is from Moelbers in the States. Everyone listen to this podcast! Literally the biggest fan of this podcast. I didn't even know I liked mythology, but Liv makes every story hilarious and interesting. Ten out of ten recommend. I mean, God, I'm worked up in this one. This is an This is a perfect example, I think, of this, if I do say so myself. Let's Talk About Myths, baby, is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research and so much more. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. And special thanks today to August Guskowski. They had already created some incredible materials for a different podcast on this wild and wacky Greek epic, but that other podcast fell through, let's say, that's the nice way. And so August reached out and they wanted to share their incredible research with me instead. And I was so thrilled to have some outside research that's just ready to go. So huge thanks to August for helping out. Thank you all for listening. As always, I am Liv. I really quite like this ancient stuff. It's weird and fun, don't you think? (sighs) 
<sighs> All right, I love this shit. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.